Thank you, Roger, for those prayers. Um, good morning again, church. It's great to be with you all today as we start this new series that Roger mentioned, A Cruciform Life, How the Cross Changes Everything. I'm excited to start this series. This is one of those series that um, probably began about six to nine months ago as I was digging through various books here and thinking about the cross, um, hopefully in deeper ways um, than before, and looking at how the cross really is the lens to which we view God through, as well as Scripture through. We started this Lenten journey last Wednesday on Ash Wednesday, and we've left up a couple of our stations here. And... During Lent, we, of course, encourage people to give up something or to take something on or both to create space for God to work. And I'm not sure if, if you haven't decided yet to, to give up. There's still time. Most of Lent is still ahead of us, so it's okay if you haven't started. So Wednesday night after Ash Wednesday, um, Eric and I got home and we were talking and neither of us had decided yet what to give up. And talking about some ideas, and then Erica asks me, what do you think I should give up? That's kind of a dangerous question, right? <laughs> and I thought, well, if I answer this question, then I'm going to be obligated to ask her what she thinks I should give up. And I wasn't sure I wanted to do that, right? And, uh, but anyway, we did. We shared what the other should give up and, and thought about that. And it wasn't so much... Um, you know, giving up bad things, but it's where can you give something up to create space for God? So uh, one of the things I'll be giving up is streaming. So no Netflix, and it was like, okay, you can't just turn to Disney Plus if you've given up Netflix. Okay, so no streaming in general to create some space. Taking on the one-app devotional um, as well. So I would encourage you to reflect on how God might want to grow you in this season. So this series is Jesus on the cross. On the cross is where God pours himself out, where he uses his privilege, not for himself, but for the sake of others. The cross is where we understand God and how we are to live our lives in this world. The cross should be the lens that we view God, where we view his word. When we look at the cross, we should see who God is. Now, one of the things we're going to be doing in this series, and Carol mentioned it, um, I won't really be bringing you any new ideas in this series. They all come from these books I've been pouring through. Um, but this one, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, will be a book study that we do. I draw from it heavily, um, as well as N.T. Wright, The Day the Revolution Began. Um, as well as cross-vision. So some of the questions that we're going to be unpacking um, in this series is, did Jesus have to die? Who killed Jesus? What difference does the cross make? How does the crucifixion help us make sense of the Old Testament? So this book here, how does the crucifixion right, make sense of Old Testament violence? How do we reconcile the cross with some of what we see happening in the Old Testament? And how does the cross show us how to live and how to do church? 
Now, why, why do this series? Um, to be honest, this series might stir up some of the beliefs that you've held on to. It might challenge them. I might get pushed back. Why, why not leave well enough alone? I don't get a lot of people coming to me going, now explain really what happened on the cross, right? But it is so important for how we live our lives and to how we understand God. And, and what burdens me, you might not be coming with questions about the cross today, but I hope in this series that it deepens your faith in God and how you live out your life. But you may have people in your life that struggle with the cross, with struggle with this idea of violence, that struggle with the idea of violence in the Old Testament. And I think many people that are atheists struggle with this idea. So how do we respond Sometimes we're given such a narrow explanation that it turns people off. And so my hope is this series that it will stretch our boundaries to put Jesus at the center, but not anything extra on top of Jesus. So I'm looking forward to this journey. Let's start um, with a quote from N.T. Wright. He says this, I had been taught that the death of Jesus was all about God saving me from my sin so that I could go to heaven. That was definitely what I was taught. And we really kind of confronted this question last year in the Heaven and Earth series. And then he says, according to the book of Revelation, Jesus died in order to make us restored human beings with the vocation to play a vital part in God's purposes for this world. That is a much richer and fuller understanding of scripture than his initial impression. This was an image that we've unpacked several times, and this is the reflection of that image, this idea of creation, heaven and earth, Genesis 1 and 2, is heaven on earth. They're completely overlapped, and sin disrupts that. It takes us away from our original vocation, takes us away from God's purposes, and God's whole plan from there on was this rescue plan, bringing heaven back to earth and ultimately restoring and renewing and reconciling heaven and earth together. So where does the cross play out in that big story narrative? That's what we're going to explore. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this morning, and I thank you for who you are, Jesus. And may we love you more deeply in this series, God. May we see more clearly your heart for us and how we live and how we do church. In your name, amen. Paul says it this way in Romans. He says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, why did Christ die? There's an historical answer to that. Pilate, the uh, governmental authorities, Caiaphas, the religious authorities, killed Jesus. Why did Jesus die? He was killed. But there's also a theological question. What did God hope to achieve in this? How did Jesus understand his own death? What did he think was going on? And we're going to unpack this during the next six weeks. So depending on what part of the New Testament you look at, you might see different understandings of the cross from the Gospels to Paul to Hebrews. All of them brings their insight and their perspective on what happened. The early Christians weren't so concerned with forming a theory about what exactly happened on the cross. 
They sort of understood it as reality. They understood it in the context they were given, and, and they moved on. But theories do develop, and we'll look at some of those in this series. Paul was so struck by the cross that he can say this to us in 1 Corinthians. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Him crucified. And as I read that, I think, well, yeah. But I probably would have said, and him resurrected, right? This journey is all the way to Easter. Him resurrected, but Paul says, for him crucified. So we're going to spend time on that. We'll look deeply into the crucifixion that Jesus undertook. See, Christ is the clearest picture we have of God. Scripture points to Jesus as the representation, as God himself. He gives us the clearest picture of who God is. And Christ on the cross is the center of our faith. And I propose that event of Jesus on the cross should then be the lens that we look at through the life of Jesus, through God's big story, through Scripture, to understand who God really is and what he's doing for us. The cross is the epicenter of our faith, where our sins are forgiven and the world is set right. It is on the cross. When we're asked what God is like, we can say Jesus. Jesus on the cross. That is what God is like. Now, that was not a popular idea. In fact, the disciples rejected that idea. Who wants to be a part of a religion where your God dies, where he suffers, where he is killed? Remember when Peter had just declared that Jesus was the Messiah, and then Jesus says, I am going to die. Peter's like, no, 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 no. That's not going to happen to you. We're not going to let that happen. And Jesus rebukes Peter. Peter's like, no way, you're the Messiah, you're not going to be killed. This can't be where this is going. That would be tragic. But the cross for us has become the symbol of our faith. It became the symbol for Christ's followers. Instead of being a place of cursed and torture, it becomes a symbol of Christ's love, where we can see God so clearly. We worship a crucified God. Before we worship a victorious God on Easter, we worship the crucified God of Good Friday. Now, other religions worship omnipotent gods, glorious gods, victorious gods, but we worship a crucified God. Paul says it this way as well. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. See, the point is that Paul is wanting to make in the city of Corinth, this Gentile city, they prided themselves on their intellectual life, on their cultural life. And, you know, Paul stands up to speak about Jesus of Nazareth, who had been crucified by the Romans, but raised from the dead by God, and who is now Lord of the world. Summoning people to faithful obedience. He knew what the Corinthians would think. This is crazy. This is foolishness. This doesn't make sense. And the world doesn't get it. It seems like 
foolishness. And we struggle to leave it as foolishness. We want it to make sense. Especially since the Reformation 500 years ago, Christians have tried to make sense of it, tried to very narrowly define it. So it it doesn't seem like foolishness. It seems like the right equation to what makes sense in our faith. And we call those atonement theories, and we'll dig into some of those over the coming weeks. And I find some atonement theories, what Jesus did on the cross, helpful but incomplete. I find some atonement theories um, give us the exact opposite picture of who God is when they pit the Father against the Son, where they picture the Father as angry and vengeful and the Son as all compassion, when they picture the Father requiring child sacrifice in order to be willing to forgive, it gives us an unhelpful picture of who God is. Now, you may be thinking, well... I've never really thought deeply about it. And if if that's where you're at, that is okay. I love how N.T. Wright says it. He says, you don't have to be able to answer the question, the why of the cross, before the cross can have its effect of transformation. Amen? Because that might be you here today. And he explains, you don't have to understand how to do good cooking in order to enjoy a good meal. You can appreciate a concert without knowing how to play the instrument. So we can experience the transformation of the cross without maybe fully understanding what Jesus was doing on it. See, for Paul, when he preached to Corinth about this foolishness, the cross had to do its own work. Simply telling the story released a power quite different from human speech. It was God's power manifest in that story, besides which all human power looks weak next to God's. God's wisdom, not our wisdom. And we see people respond to that message in Corinth, and we see people respond to that message now. I responded to the message of the cross as a child, a very probably unhelpful presentation of the gospel. I responded more out of fear than anything else. It was sort of, let me traumatize you with the anger of the Father, and let me tell you then, once you're traumatized about Jesus, who will stand in the way of the Father somehow from from striking you down. But there was something in who Jesus was that drew me. Now, my faith needed to go deeper, and I had to actually deconstruct some of what I had been taught early on. In our life group, Denver was sharing a podcast that he had listened to that says, don't teach your kids something that you'll have to deconstruct later. And I found that helpful as well. As Christians, we confess that Christ died for our sins. Paul says it here in 1 Corinthians, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to scripture. What does that mean that he died for our sins? I think one of the things we see is we see the lengths God will go to to forgive us. Now, we struggle, I think, a lot of times in the modern world of holding mystery, of holding tension between what we can know and and what is mysterious, and we want to have everything figured out. 
But I would encourage us to sit with some of this mystery this week. Before we dive into explanation, sit with the mystery of the cross. Let it confront you afresh and anew about who God is. We look at the cross and we say this is our God. Jesus on the cross. It can be hard to look at. When I was in high school, I worked at a Christian bookstore, and we pretty much sold whatever Christians would buy. And um, that was our discerning lens, right? And so we would sell crosses, and we would sell crucifixes. Crucifixes being, you know, Jesus is on the cross. We'd have Catholics that mostly wanted the crucifix and Protestants that wanted the cross without Jesus on it. And I was maybe 16, and somebody comes to me who's clearly a Protestant and says, why do you sell crucifixes? I said, well, Jesus was on the cross, right? That's pretty important. He's not there anymore, right? And for him, it was like, yeah, yeah, that happened, but let's not think about it, right? It's like he had sort of discounted all of Scripture where Paul is saying this is the key, actually, Jesus on the cross. And I get it, that it can be hard to look at. That's a stark image And it was even more so then. It's not hard to imagine why almost everybody left him there to see him being killed would have been so hard. How can this tortured man possibly be God? An unjust killing of an innocent man, the murder of an innocent God. Before the cross is anything, it's tragic. It's the murder of somebody innocent. This is how the disciples um, unpack it in Acts. And we won't go through all those scriptures, but the early church is describing, you know, Christ was killed by lawless hands. They killed the author of life. You hanged him on a tree. Religion and politics did that. God did not kill Jesus. Acts 7.52, you murdered him. The death of Jesus on the cross was murder. It was a mob killing that God knew would happen because of our sin, but he did not will it. It was injustice. God knew this would happen, but it did not catch him by surprise. Plato predicted this would happen 300 years earlier. He says, in the Republic, that what would happen if a perfectly just and innocent man came amongst us? We would crucify him. God did not will Jesus to die. What God willed was that through his death, Jesus would save us from sin and death. God crucified the giver of life, the creator crucified by his creation. This is the greatest foolishness of all time. Now we're going to take this journey to Good Friday. Where do we find God on that day? If it was his will that this happened, was he in the mob? Was he with Pilate? Was he with Caiaphas and the religious leaders? Sending Jesus to the cross? No. In Christ on the cross is where we find God.
that day. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says it this way, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Now, we shouldn't misunderstand this to mean that God, as God reconciling himself to the world, it wasn't God who was alienated to the world. It was the world that was alienated towards God. Jesus didn't die on the cross to change God's mind about us. Jesus dies on the cross to change our minds about God and who he is. When Jesus says on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. How do you think the father responded? Well, I didn't really want to forgive them. But Jesus, because of you, I'll do it. No. He says, of course. That has been my heart. That is my heart. Certainly, my son. For you have always represented me. You have always revealed my heart. And you are showing to the world what I am like. Ryan Zahn says it this way. The cross is where God in Christ absorbs human sin and recycles it into forgiveness. I love Jesus and what he has done. I love our scriptures in that they point to Jesus and who he is and what he has done. But the story of Jesus on the cross is not one that you would think would attract a following. It shows the vulnerability of God that he opens himself up to be killed in what looks like defeat. Eugene was um, pulling together my uh, slideshow this week and, and looking at some of the points that I was making, and he found uh, this image. Now, if you can't see it, this is a super buffed, strong Jesus on the cross, and I saw it and I burst out laughing, right? I think most of us want to follow a God that is powerful, right? That can take care of business through strength and might. And yet this is not what the early followers saw when they saw Jesus on the cross. I love how Paul Kolho says it. The strongest love is a love that can demonstrate its fragility. Jesus, his incarnation, we celebrated Advent, his becoming a baby. Jesus, God in flesh, was an extreme act of vulnerability. He says he's come to bring good news, to heal, to set free, to announce his kingdom. And as we read the stories of Matthew, Mark, and Luke especially, we see the powers and the principalities, religious leaders, political leaders. We see this tension rising the closer Jesus gets to Jerusalem. We can almost anticipate the tragedy that is going to happen. How does Jesus respond to these powers? He's condemned to death by political and religious powers. How does he respond? He lives out his teaching that he gave on the Sermon on the Mount. To love enemies, to forgive, to turn the other cheek. 
The only time Jesus responds verbally to his accusers and executioners is to say this, Father, forgive them. Jesus gives us our best understanding of the cross. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. But we didn't always know it. But now we do. The word has become flesh, as we sang earlier today. This cruciform. Cruciform is cross-shaped. Jesus stretched out. Jesus is like that. God is like that. God is a tortured man nailed to a tree, forgiving his enemies. Now, cultures around the world instinctively think of the gods being angry, of how do we appease the gods? How do we make things right between us and the gods? This is a statue of Zeus pointing his finger with the firebolt. And, and it's natural to, to think of the gods that way. We don't know these gods. How do we appease these gods? We need to bring sacrifice and offerings. But what if things don't go well? Do we have to do more to appease them? We hear of Moloch in the Old Testament who requires child sacrifice. We hear, we hear of Baal, the, the fertility god that has to be appeased or you won't have crops and you won't have children. And God steps into his people in that time and says, I can tell you how to have peace with me. Was the death of Jesus a sacrifice? It was indeed a sacrifice. But it was a sacrifice to end sacrificing, not a sacrifice to appease an angry and retributive God. This is our God. Jesus stretched out. Any explanations of the cross that pit the Father against the Son are not accurate. The two are never working against each other, but united in love and forgiveness. We understand who Jesus is on the cross, his posture towards us. It's a beautiful truth that is life-changing, that should be changing our lives in how we live. I hope in this series that we have an accurate picture of God because it truly is transformative to have that work in and through our lives. What does this God call us to do? To live lives like this. I'm not sure where this quote came from, but it is stuck in my mind. Unless it acts like Jesus, it isn't Christian. I have heard Christians um, do ugly things and justify their behavior. Oppression, self-protection, exclusion, hate, because being Christ-like was not effective politically, economically. It wasn't effective at building the church. And guess what? They're probably right. It's probably not effective in those things. But Jesus does not call us to success, church. He calls us to faithfulness, to walk in the world the way he did. He says this to his followers, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye, but I tell you to turn the other cheek. 
You have heard that it was said to love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you to love your enemies and to pray for them. And he doesn't just leave it with him, does he? I think this is why Peter objected. He knew to be a follower of Jesus was to, to, to live like Jesus lived. And that was not attractive. Jesus himself says it to us in Matthew 16, 24. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. See, the disciples had a view of how the kingdom was going to be, and it wasn't that their Messiah was going to die and be killed on a cross. It was to overthrow the enemies. But God sees things the other way around. He sees what's inside. He turns things right side up. And he lives it out. It's more important to be faithful than effective. There is nothing so urgent in our lives that we have to get off the cross in order to make it happen. So often we see Jesus speaking against religious leaders misusing their power, using it for themselves, using it to oppress others, to condemn others, to put barriers between God and the people. Paul captures this truth in Philippians, talking about Jesus. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. The cross changes how we see God, changes how we live. This cruciformity isn't just what God does for us. It's how he invites us to live our lives in the workplace, in school. It's to change how we do church. This is the beauty and the challenge of the cross. So I'm excited about all that's going to happen, what God will do in this journey, church. On Ash Wednesday, we had a time of ministry, and I wanted to, to carry that into today. Um, I'll invite the worship team to come up, and, and they'll play during this time. And we have a couple of stations. Um, those that were here on Wednesday will know these stations. Here um, is just a time to come up and to pray, to light a candle, bringing God's light into the darkness. Over on the table over there is an opportunity to reflect, but also to make a cross on some canvas there. Um, with markers. And my encouragement to you in this season is to carry this cross with you, to, to let it be a reminder of the cross of Jesus and that it shows us who God is, but he also invites us to carry our cross, and each of us has our own cross to carry. And God is with you in that carrying. I also want to invite up our prayer ministers. I think we have Candy and Conrad today. I'll be up here as well. For whatever you might be going through, whether it's the cross you're carrying or if you are ministering along somebody else you want prayer for, um, please do come up and pray. God, I thank you that you are here and that through your Holy Spirit, God, you invite us to a life that is transformative, God, and I pray for that work of transformation, especially this Lenten season. God, may our hearts be open to what you want to do in this season and in this time, we pray in your name.
Amen. So church, make use of this time. If it's to visit the table, if it's to come forward, if it's to be prayed for, um, let God minister to you.